Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Lenehan. With me, uh, remotely, not quite in studio today, but on the screen in front of me, are Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Top of the morning to you, Hugh. Pat, there's really only one story that seems to be occupying the political correspondence of the land this morning, Friday morning, and that is the uh, quite remarkable performance of the Taunish and Michal Martin in the Dáil yesterday during the debate or during discussions, I should say, over issues pertaining to Limerick Fianna Fáil, TD, uh, Niall Collins. Yeah, it was quite an astonishing outburst, really, uh, in many respects, from Michal Martin, who has become in this, what I think is probably the final phase of his domestic political career anyway, a livelier, dull performer than he might previously have been known for. But he certainly went off on one yesterday uh, when asked about the Niall Collins controversy, which we reported in the Ditch website. And he went off this extraordinary attack on the Ditch uh, website, where this and other stories, which caused the government some discomfort in the past year, have been reported, and also he uh, attacked the Ditch's backers, the uh, tech conference uh, organiser Paddy Cosgrave, whom many readers will be uh, familiar with as a uh, vocal anti-government presence on the Twitter machine, and his pal, and also I think sometime Ditch backer Shay Bowes, who was also somebody who was central to the controversy over Leo Varadkar's leak of a uh, GP contract some time ago, and no need to go back into uh, uh, all that this morning, I think. Um, anyway, Michal Martin accused him of running you know, a political campaign uh, and basically told the opposition that they shouldn't be facilitating them, they shouldn't be following up you know, the ditches allegations are giving them credence and, uh, and and also basically advised the rest of the media in the same thing. So I thought it was a, a kind of an extraordinary uh, intervention from uh, from the Tornish, but one which, while worthy of comment in and of itself, probably shouldn't divert us from the questions about uh, about. Niall Collins's uh, property dealings are Niall Collins's role in property dealings that his his wife had with uh, the local authority in Limerick because ultimately you know that's I, I guess the more Im- important question rather than the Tonishta's view of the source of uh, of the allegations because you know what's important is the facts that have been uncovered whether they're uncovered by the ditch or anybody else that's what's important. And there is certainly a prima facie case for Niall Collins uh, to answer in that regard. Absolutely return to that, and I agree with you that that is the news story. But just, Jennifer, I just, just wonder what you make of this. I mean, the ditch 
um, as our listeners almost certainly know, has already claimed a couple of notable scalps over the past year in the shape of two junior ministers, Damien English and, and, and Robert Troy. It's accused of having a political agenda by Michal Martin, which raises the interesting questions of, you know, are media organisations supposed to be, you know, in some way apolitical? They're not. They're clearly not. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with having a political agenda. But then there were broader points which he made about alleged social media manipulation, other kinds of things. And and I, I certainly saw, I'm sure you did as well, sort of hashtag campaigns towards the end of last week about why weren't other media organisations running this story or not. And, um, and I did wonder a little bit about where they came from sometimes. So, I mean, I know some people in media, I'm not one of them, don't think media should be the story. I think this is in part an interesting media story. It is, definitely. I think there's a difference between a um, media outlet having a political agenda or pursuing a story because they think there's a story to be pursued and between what Michal Martin is alleging is happening and, and his, in essence, his point that he made yesterday was that this is a political campaign, that this is politically driven specifically against, I presume he means Fianna Fáil or government parties. Um, and he was saying, his exact quote was that this is a political organisation attacking government and wanting to undermine confidence in it. And, you know, that's a, that's a big claim to make because there's, there's a couple of different aspects to this. I mean, I've seen it loads of times down through the past where there is unfavourable coverage of the government or government parties or a story or a minister or, or TD, whatever, and the government hasn't liked it and they have attacked the media. I've been on the receiving end of it a few times, which you, you come to expect and that's fine. Um, I think it's, it's, it can be a dodgy road to go down to try and take it away from the story, like Pat says, and turn it against a media outlet. Having said that... I do think that there are some interesting points that he raises about this. Firstly, I think it shows the fact that he went on this, um, I suppose, I, I wouldn't use the word diatribe, but it was it was certainly quite the spiel. The fact that he went on this shows that he, it shows the exasperation effectively within Fianna Fáil and within government parties at the reporting that the ditch is doing. Um, my opinion is that the reporting the ditch is doing stands for itself. If it didn't, then we wouldn't have seen the resignation of ministers of state. And I know there are journalists who have looked at those stories and said, God, I wish I had those stories myself. If I had have known about it, I would have written it myself. Um, so that's that. However, he did make one or two interesting points in relation to Paddy Cosgrave. And I know we don't want to get bogged down on any one person and we won't, but it was a point that he brought up in the doll, which is why I bring it up. He said that he had seen a tweet, effectively, um, strong comments made online by uh, Paddy Cosgrave. And, and I went and found the tweet, and, and this is the tweet, and it's up online for anybody to see. It says, I've been ripping apart the top layer of Ireland's corrupt and criminal cartel. It's been fun and satisfying work, aside from the threats and smears. Anyway, maybe it's time to body bag a few minions in media, civil service, charities, judiciary, private sector, etc. Now, if any one of us on the political team or any other newspaper put out a tweet about body bagging, people in politics or anywhere else, it would seriously undermine our work, understandably so. Um, and if I put out a tweet like that, uh, I would be expected to be hauled before the editor's office. And I wouldn't because it would undermine my work. I also, do, also don't think that way. Don't go into the doll in the morning and say, whose scalp am I going to, you know, just for fun, like whose career am I going to claim today? You chase the story and the story only. You go after it wherever it leads. That's supposed to be the job. Um, and, and sometimes there is no story and sometimes there is a story and that's the end of it. And I do think there is a point there to be made about that impartiality. You know, if you want your reporting, and I do believe the Ditch's reporting is stand-up reporting, they've, I think they've done a really good job on this and really get into the nitty-gritty of 
planning applications uh, and we've seen how how much there is there to be discovered. So I believe in that. I don't believe in this other element of it. I, I, I personally can understand, I think, why a politician might look at that and say, what's that about? So uh, I'm not trying to play both sides here, but that's my opinion on it at the end of the day. But I think, like I say, it shows the fact that he went on this kind of rant in the doll. I think it shows the exasperation they have with the fact that they are being targeted by this investigative website. And I think they live in fear of what's next because I think realistically, if you looked into everybody's planning applications, not just in the doll, but around the country, I think you find a lot of things. I think you could keep your reporting going for years and years and years, quite frankly. I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I think, as Jen says, the reporting stands on its own. And if the allegations that they made turn out to be, you know, backed up by official documents and so forth, then fine. I mean, I suppose, and I think Justine, I think it's Justine makes the, makes the point in her column uh, this morning that, you know, that we have a fascination with these sort of you know, mini scandals. Uh, and, you know, let's face it, this isn't Watergate, fellas, you know. Uh, you know, we have a fascination with these these sort of mini scandals and they tend to absolutely consume our political attention for days on end, perhaps to the, uh, you know, the exclusion of, you know, proper scrutiny on things that may turn out to be uh, proper attention on, uh, on things that may turn out to be, you know, more important uh, for politics and for the country. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I feel that, you know, perhaps a bit of perspective uh, is warranted on these things. But that's not to, you know, say that these aren't stories that should be reported or that there is anything illegitimate in pursuing these stories. And, you know, clearly there's some degree of a political agenda at the ditch in that they tend to concentrate wholly on, you know, maybe second-tier government politicians. But, you know, that's fine insofar as it goes. It's up to the rest of us to make our own decisions on how important or newsworthy or whatever the stories are, just as we would look at the stories in all sorts of other publications and see if they're worth following up and... I'm sure other publications look at our stuff and make uh, make similar make similar discussions. That's what happens when you have you know a, a, a plural media, and uh, I think that the Tonishta's attack on the ditch, whether it was a deliberate attempt to divert attention from uh, the aspects of the the Nile Collins story, or, or whether it was, as Jen suggest simply an expression of frustration and exasperation at this constant uh, targeting of government politicians by the ditch. Uh, you know, I don't know. But either way, it's not the aspect of the story that most interests me. Well, can I just say something on that On that point? One question that has been asked of loads of journalists, and I um, lately especially tend to avoid Twitter 90% more than I used to. But when I have logged on and had a look, I have seen tweets to most journalists. And, uh, you know, every time they tweet a story they're working on, there's a response underneath saying, what about Niall Collins? The one thing I want to say about that is, fair enough, like people are, and readers, especially subscribers, Irish Times are very entitled to ask, what about this and what about that? That's fine. That's who we're accountable to. That's where we're here for the readers. But I don't think people sometimes understand that, like, if you're in the middle of focusing on something for a week, and your 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 colleague like Pat Cormac and Harry have been leading the way on this uh, in our place. Uh, I've been working on abortion all week. I'm not going to like stop a ten point piece about the main points of the abortion review and suddenly be like, "What happened on the site in 2008?" And I, I just don't know if people sometimes 
get that there isn't a sinister plot. It's actually just we're up the walls with other things sometimes. And, and, and that's the only point I would make, just in, in self-defense, more than anything else. I would add just finally on that on that point, is that tweeting at me, what about Niall Collins is by, by, by some distance the least mad of the communications <laughs> that I receive on a regular Likewise. basis. Likewise. Yeah, I mean, then just one last point, or maybe a couple of points on this, on this part. I mean, one is that obviously, as you say, these stories may not be earth-shattering. They're not Watergate, but they do, you know, they, they may be significant. They've been significant enough to dispatch two junior ministers, so they have some significance. Um, and they also feed into a larger picture of a political establishment, which is on one side of the of the social divide between those who hold property and those who don't, which is probably the single most important driving force in our current political narrative. The other thing I'm wondering about, which a few people have commented on, is how quiet the main opposition party are about this stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not sure how much the main opposition party, Sinn Féin, wants to have focused on, you know, the properties owned by its own leading politicians. Um, uh, Maybe that's part of the Part of the explanation, I don't know. We we do know that um, Shane Ross, in his biography of Mary Lou MacDonald, asked a number of questions about how she had afforded what is, I've never seen it, but by all accounts, quite a substantial uh, house in uh, in Dublin that Mary Lou MacDonald lives in. And, um, and while he stressed in his copy that he was alleging no wrongdoing whatsoever, he was just asking questions about how she had uh, afforded it. And um, for his pains, he uh, was clobbered with a libel action by uh, by her husband. So that's clearly something that uh, Mary Lou Macdonald and Sinn Féin don't want a great deal of, uh, of, of, of focus on. But, you know, I suppose that's by the by. Uh, you know, I suppose if you were in uh, Sinn Féin, you would think that why try and do the ditches job for it if it's doing it perfectly well on its own? We're probably going to come back to this at some point over the next week or so, but uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. But Jen, I'm interested. You're talking about covering the abortion story over the last um, over the last week or so, and um, where is that at now? In terms of we hear talk of there being certain disagreements within government on it. We asked Eamon Ryan about it in our podcast on Wednesday. I was still a little bit unclear as exactly what the the position of the government or indeed of some of the opposition parties, including Sinn Féin, are on it. Yeah, it's an interesting one because obviously, you know, when the the referendum happened in 2018, and the lead up to that, the government did kind of outline to the public, if you vote yes, here's, you know, here's effectively the law that you will you will get. On the other hand, what they were also saying to people was, if you vote yes, you're voting yes to allowing the, the, the government to, and the Oireachtas to legislate for abortion, take it out of the hands of where it'd been floating around the courts and put it in the hands of politicians. Um, and that, that was the vote there. And I think as part of that law, I remember at the time, there was a lot of debate around when to have a review of the Act maybe three years, maybe five years, they went for the sooner um, review time in the end and that review has now come in. And I think what's actually happened is that I genuinely think the politicians have been surprised by how widespread the changes that are recommended are. I don't think they expected it. I remember talking to someone quite senior just before Christmas, checking in, annoying people about this, like, where's the review? What's happening? Blah, blah, blah. And they said, I don't know why you're so... um, not interested and I don't know why you know you keep asking because I don't know what you really expect from this review and I was kind of saying well what do you mean and they said it's not going to make recommendations you know it's just going to look at how the, the legislation works and and that was someone quite senior and I that just 
like copper fastens my belief that they genuinely didn't expect all of these recommendations. And they range from the three-day wait, which was something Simon Coveney was pushing for in March of 2018. I think that's one of the reasons he actually got on board with the 12-week limit, which was government policy, which he didn't agree with up until that point. Um, and, you know, everything from that to decriminalisation, um, you know, uh, uh, fatal fetal abnormal. I mean, there's so many recommendations in it. And, and, and my point is that the, the scale of it, I think they didn't expect. And what's happened now is that there are many members of cabinet who would have had reservations originally. Um, many of them were kind of, you know, could have been in the middle ground, maybe were, I won't say bought by, but certainly convinced by extra things that were put in, like the, the three-day wait. And now they're finding that those things potentially might be gone. And they're in the strange position whereby they, you know, talked about a social revolution in Ireland, celebrated the successful repeal that the government um, advocated for a yes vote. And now they're potentially going to have to come out and say they disagree with the elements of this. And I bumped into someone in the corridor the other day uh, from Cabinet and asked them, um, how come you didn't? Basically, I sent a text out to all ministers saying, what is your opinion on this? Do you have any problems with it? Do you have any concerns with it? Get back to me by six o'clock. Um, but um, the, only the she Greens... She ordered. I ordered and only the Greens got back. But I bumped into a minister then who I text and they said, oh, I got your text, I got your text. And I said, indeed. And... And they said, yeah, not going there. <laughs> I kind of thought, oh, right. And they're like, not making that mistake again. And I just thought that is that said everything to me. I think there is a reluctance amongst senior politicians to get involved. That's why they've, I won't say kicked it onto the health committee. I actually think that's probably the best place for it to go. But they're like, okay, that's gone over there now. They can deal with that now. They'll come back to us. Take your time is their view and come back to us. Uh, later and we'll deal with that then and I think a lot of them and some of them are using the excuse of saying well I haven't read the report now like I know I'm a quick reader but I read it in four hours I don't think that's an excuse so I think they just don't want to deal with it right now and as for the opposition Sinn Féin TDs won't be given a free vote which will come as an absolute shock to everybody here today but um, they, I, I, what I anticipate is that the health committee will come back with their recommendations they'll probably have either I don't know when their next Ordesh is, but meet a lead meeting of the Orcorla and then decide their policy and all TDs will have to vote in line with that. There's a p- potential political problem for the government, Pat. I mean, it was it was quite striking back at the time of the referendum that two parties that had a very wide range of opinions on, on the issue of abortion, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, um, their leaders managed to bring most of their parties over the line, less so with Fianna Fáil. I mean, is there a possibility that this might rear its head as a live political issue again in a way that maybe people didn't expect, as Jen was saying? don't think so, to be honest. Um, I think a lot of politics has been taken out of, uh, of abortion. And even if it is, uh, turns out to be a political problem, um, as Jen points out, that won't be for some time uh, as the uh, Health Committee's writing instructions will be to do a thorough job on this and not to be in any rush back uh, for amending legislation. I mean, if you think about it, you know, there, you know there's nothing at all unusual uh, about, you know, investigating the potential for changing the law. And, you know, there's a fairly well-worn process goes through that. There's a report on the thing. It'll go, the committee will make its recommendations. It may recommend a change in the law. And then you go into the whole legislative process, none of which, of course, uh, happens quickly. On the other hand, you know, our listeners will need kind of no lessons, I suppose, in the political sensitivity in the past on abortion. Um, Many Irish politicians spent 
you know, kind of a couple of decades terrified of any mention of the words uh, uh, abortion and particular abortion law reform. Now, that has diminished very significantly since, uh, since the referendum, but its existence at the time of the referendum is underlined by the fact that the government published the heads of the bill before the referendum in order to reassure people who were cautious, I suppose, about reforming uh, the, or about getting rid of, uh, of the ban on abortion in the Constitution. That kind of middle ground of people who were, turned out to be decisive in the uh, uh, abortion referendum, who were in favour of, uh, of repeal, but had concerns about the abortion regime that would be legislated for afterwards. And that's why the government explicitly said at the time that it was publishing the heads in order so that people knew uh, what what the legislation that would follow the referendum uh, uh, would uh, would be. And uh, and so they did that. And, and now, I suppose, you know, people, and, you know, there's a third of people in the country uh, who voted uh, against repeal. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but my guess is that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael voters might have been well represented uh, amongst that group. So there will be some unease. And there is, as Jen points out, there is some unease amongst uh, politicians uh, about that. But, you know, to the extent that abortion ever becomes, or the regulation of abortion ever becomes a normal political issue, I think, I don't know about that, but I guess that's the, the, that's the process that, that, that we're going through at the moment. Another part of this, Jen, is, you know, is reports um, this week that the provision of abortion is, uh, for, the, for those who need it, is, it can be very patchy around the country. And there are, there are questions which, which also crop up in the report about conscientious objection and the, the absence of GP referrals in certain parts of the country are very difficult to get a GP referral in some parts of the country. Yeah, I think this is actually the most important part of the debate. Obviously, it, it is hugely political in that it is now before coming back before the Iraq just so of course it is in essence political right now but actually if you look at what's happened it's an independent report um and I think it's actually very well put together I've read a lot of shoddy reports in my time um I have been the author of no I'm just kidding um but I'm um, <laughs> some shoddy no um but I I think it's very well put together and I actually think if you look at it's an independent report and what it's saying is effectively that the law at present isn't working for women or doctors. If I was to summarise the report, that's what it says. It says, and, and the, one of the main reasons is what you say, Hugh, it is this um, major problem of the uneven geographic coverage of abortion services. So half the counties in the Republic have fewer than 10 GPs who have contracts as of last year. Nine have fewer than five um, and they're extraordinary low figures given this law has been in place for a number of years. And what it effectively means is that women are either taxiing or having to travel to different counties. There's, you know, there's only 11 out of 19 hospitals providing full services. And when you have something like they're talking about the three-day wait, um, it's really difficult for women, especially women of a lower income, or you could be um, you could be a migrant, etc., to actually not only get the first appointment, actually secure that appointment with a GP who already has a massive workload, um, but get there and then get back home, and then get to your next appointment. And these are the logistical things that the report lies out. And I think if if politicians follow the logic on it, I don't think it'll be massively controversial. The same goes for the recommendations about the wording 
of the law, like they're saying, the review author, Marie Barrister Marie O'Shea, she's saying that the wording of the law around, so currently you could get an abortion if, if there is a serious risk to the health or risk to the life of a woman, or in, in case of fatal fetal abnormality where the fetus would likely die outside the womb after 28 days. And what the doctors have told the review is that they're looking at this law and there's no actual guidance. They're looking at it and saying it's effectively subjective. It's in one way extremely restrictive and then also too vague. Um, and they're looking at it and going, well, I think it means this. And you've got these multidisciplinary teams and the head of that team might say, no, that's not what it is. And I think that that's something, again, follow, follow the logic of this. Um, and I think if, if, they, if they follow the logic, then I, I think they'll arrive at whatever conclusion is the one that the cross-party committee decides is the right one. But, but that's, the, that's a huge part of it, Hugh, it's, is that uneven geographic distribution, the fact that what's there right now isn't enough. Um, and it's not serving women as the law that was agreed uh, in Christmas 2018 um, stipulated effectively. It's, it's not working. That's what that review says. I mean, there's two issues, just to jump in on that for a sec, Hugh. There's the application of the current regime, which, as Jen points out, is incomplete and, and, and patchy. And then there's the changing of the, uh, of the current regime. My guess is that the government will act uh, much more quickly on the former than the latter. Good points all around there. Uh, we're going to leave it there for a moment. We're going to take a break. Before we do, let me remind you, as always, that if you haven't done so, it's really a very good idea to subscribe to irishtimes.com to listen to um, and to read the reports from Jen, Pat and all our colleagues. Uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be back after this. And you're welcome back, Jen and Pat are still here. Um, Jen, you were writing about Leo Varadkar, not for the first time, is musing on the subject of, of uh, tax reductions for the people of Ireland. Yes, Leo Varadkar is playing his, his greatest hits this week. Um, like, let's nobody be surprised. I'm not surprised. No one here is surprised that Leo Varadkar is talking about tax cuts. Um, and he loves an old tax cut. He loves a tax cut. And it's, oh, do you know what, actually? It's the same time every year for the last decade that this conversation starts about tax and Fine Gael, uh, etc. But what, what, what happened this week was that there was the weekly parliamentary party meeting of Fine Gael, um, and uh, during that meeting, Leo Varadkar told his TDs and senators that he, the priority, that he sees the priority in the next budget in terms of tax cuts as middle-income families, and I think he used the words, people who pay too much tax, um, earners who pay too much tax, doesn't everybody think they pay too much tax? <laughs> well, yeah, because we kind of do. Um, but yeah, so he, he that that's the what I got from it basically was you know, that's the Finnegale base, really, isn't it? And he's playing to that base. And and you remember last year at the budget there was this big um I wouldn't call it an embarrassment, I think that would be too harsh, but you remember this conversation about the 30%, the new 30% tax band. And Leo Varadkar was all for it and he was pushing it. And I, I think there was a lot of resistance in the department to this idea. It was like, well, where does this come from? And and no, basically, it didn't happen. And I remember at the budget, a press conference, people kind of needling Leo Varadkar and saying, oh, what happened to your 30% tax uh, band? And he said something along the lines of, I'm super paraphrasing now, but I'll be Taoiseach next year <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'll show you then. And I actually think that that might happen this year. What he wants, like, what look, brass tax, what Fine Gael want, they want ultimate long-term goal is to change the, the tax system right now so that people can earn up to 50,000 euro before paying the higher rate of tax. That's the ultimate 
Finnegale goal, I think. And I, I think they'd try to do it over a couple of budgets. But that's what you're going to see. Um, but he also did promise uh, the same welfare package as last year. Last year's welfare package, excluding cost of living, was 1.1 billion. And that was for your 12 euro increases to your weekly welfare payments. So he seems to be promising the same again. So we're already having this conversation about, I hate the phrase good uh, budget goodies because like it's taxpayers' money, but that's effectively where this conversation is going. And Finnegale will have a meeting in June where all the members will come in and outline their budget demands. I remember writing the splash from that exact meeting last year. I feel like I could actually just write it now and or just copy and paste last year's one and file it on that day because it's going to be the exact same. Before we come to the relative merits or demerits of the kind of proposals which Leo Varadkar is raising yet again, um, and, and we will do that, um, I'm very sick of this kind of musing, kind of, if I may say, newspaper columnist style musing upon, you know, directions the country might go in from the position of uh, Taoiseach, where he might actually do something rather than just muse about it. Well, you'd be delighted to hear that I have a 2,000 word piece in tomorrow's paper musing upon these musings. So... So that's something for you and that, to look and that's forward what, and to. And that's what we pay you to do. And indeed the readers. <laughs> well, look, you can't divorce any of this from the announcement last week that, uh, you know, the government has very substantial, uh, expects to have very substantial budget surpluses. So clearly there is a uh, process that has now begun within government about... Uh, you know, arguments over who gets to spend uh, that money. And you may be sure that, uh, that, that the Taoiseach will have uh, strong views on, uh, on, on, on how that money should be spent. And you're right that he does, uh, uh, he does around about this time every year, start talking uh, about tax cuts. My guess is that uh, he will be, I think that Fianna Gael will, in, will insist on and probably needs a big recognizable tax package in uh in this year's uh in this year's this year's budget it is probably the second last but maybe the last budget before the next election i think if finegale is to talk to its voters which as jen uh, rightly uh, i think identifies includes many people who think they pay too much tax or maybe another way of looking at that is includes people who think that other people don't pay enough tax maybe (laughs) but and actually I think that this will be the subject of lots of behind the scenes rowing over the summer because the advantage I suppose are the um, you know the virtue of of the 30 percent third rate of uh, of tax our middle rate of of tax is that it is immediately recognizable it is uh it's immediately recognizable and understandable it's not a slightly esoteric tweaking of uh of of bands and uh, entry points uh, and so forth it's a well you used to pay the top rate of uh, of tax now you pay uh, uh now you pay the middle rate uh, of tax and you can see the you can see the political uh, potency uh, of uh, of that for those voters that uh, that Fine Gael is, is trying to target. So I think that will be uh, a big part of the uh, of the 
behind closed doors uh, budget discussions. I also know that there will be significant resistance uh, to this in government. So I think that'll be uh, that that'll be something that is uh, that is interesting uh, to watch. I also think that this is now it is starting early and will go on between now and the uh, and the next uh, and the next budget which will take place Michael McGrath told a, a, a doll committee during the week on the second Tuesday of October. So um I I expect we'd be talking about this one again Hugh. I suspect we will, but I mean, I I can completely understand. I think why Finnegale, in terms of its position on the political spectrum, uh, Jen, you know, tax is a point of difference for it, and it can differentiate itself both from its, you know, its fellow government members and from from the opposition too. But I mean, judging by our conversation with Eamon Ryan uh, on Wednesday, and judging from what we know about Michal Martin's vision of what Fianna Fáil stands for, they're going to have other priorities. Yeah, I mean, down through the years, Fianna Fáil have always been more a two-to-one split in favour investment in public services versus kind of tax packages. I don't see that really changing per se. But like I said, the difference this between this year and last year is that Leo Varadkar is Taoiseach now, and I'm sure he uh, will affect the changes that he's been threatening to do. So um, I think for Fine, for Fine Gael especially, I think it will be really, really hard for them to resist the urge to splash the cash when there are billions rolling around uh, that weren't expected. Um, and even if they are tenuous, even if they, they're not guaranteed to last, um, I think the the fact that, and I agree with Pat, I would say this will either be the second last budget or the budget, I would say second last. I could imagine a situation whereby next year they have the budget and pretty much immediately afterwards, once the finance bill goes through, um, head into an election. Because Sorry to go totally off topic now, but when you think about what happened before uh, in terms of Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael, uh, you know, Andy Kenny whoever was making a call about the time of the election, I think they've got it wrong every single time. It's a Fine Gael tradition um, to get the timing of the election wrong. Yeah. I think we, we, we can probably expect that honourable tradition to be yeah, maintained. I think we can and we can all look forward to that. But um, I, I, I do think that that's what will happen and I, I, I do believe that they'll find it hard to... Re- what Another element I would find interesting is there's this part we're talking about, which is welfare package, um, tax cuts, um, Fine Gael speaking to its base, but there'll also be significant pressure on cost of living again because we'll be coming into another cold spell, which is unthinkable because it feels like we're still in one. Um, and people will be, you know, looking for maybe those, uh, you know, 200 euro credits, etc. So will they even go further than they did last year? Could we see the biggest budget in the history of the state 3.0 this year, probably, maybe. Um, the biggest budget bonanza biggest ever. Biggest budget bonanza. Pat, you can write the splash now for that, and I can write the Fine Gael mean, splash now for that. We just, you know, get ahead of ourselves with this work. But yeah, I think they'll resist the urge, but I, um, will future generations judge them harshly if things go south? Maybe. And will they care is a question I think which politicians always, always have to ask themselves. But Pat, there's two big things that occur to me about this. One is that surely in the corridors of both Department of Finance and the Department of Public Expenditure and their respective ministers, um, Mr. Donoghue and Mr. McGrath, there will be pursing of lips at this sort of stuff because the received wisdom, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, is that there's this large windfall Uh, that we're getting out of corporate tax from foreign direct investment at the moment. It is unsure and we should not be banking on it into the future. So we should not be making permanent commitments such as tax cuts or indeed very large social welfare increases, whatever you may think about their merits. So, So that's one point of it. And the other one is, again, the other one that was made by Eamon Ryan earlier on, which is 
there are more people in the state. There are more, there's more education needed. There's more health needed. There's more infrastructure needed to accommodate the fact of population increase and and uh, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. So do you really want to be throwing it away on tax, on tax cuts when, in his view, slightly contentiously, what we need is more public servants and services? Yes, but the size of the surplus and the health of the the public finances means that actually you'd be able to do uh, to do all of those and still put away uh, a hefty chunk into the uh, the rainy day fund or whatever the successor of the rainy day fund is. So if you look at the budget last year, what the government actually managed to do was it increased, it broke its own rule uh, of only increasing core expenditure by. Uh, the uh, the rate of growth in the economy. So uh, it I expect will break that rule uh, again this uh, this year. So um, if it's if you don't have to keep to it, it's not really a rule. You know, it's um uh, it, it, it's more an aspiration. But uh, if you look at what the government did uh, last year in that budget budget day package, about eleven billion euros. Seven of it was on recurring expenditure, including about a billion or so euros in tax cuts, the rest of it on welfare spending and the expanding budgets of the various government departments. About four billion of it was on once-off measures. And that essentially is where you get the the the, the splurging of the surplus. It's on one-off giveaways. And okay, they may have, you know, they may have exacerbated in some respects the problem of inflation, but they are to deal with the problem of inflation as well. And the latest of those actually was paid this week. There was 200 euros paid to uh, welfare recipients uh, this week, which was the, 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 last of those, uh, the last of those payments. So I would be amazed if you don't see a budget that is um, probably of equal size, maybe a little bit bigger, but essentially structured the same. That is to say, large, but the government will insist sustainable Commitments on recurring uh, expenditure and over the overwhelming balance of those. I mean, Fine Gael does talk, as Jen mentioned, about you know two to one in favour of uh, of spending uh, over tax cuts. Actually, all the recent budgets have been multiples of uh, of that in terms of the size of the spending package over the tax cutting package. So last year, the spending package was ten times bigger than the tax package. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a slightly bigger tax package this year, but the essential structure, as I say, will remain the same. That is to say, uh, some substantial one-off payments and and packages, especially for uh, in in the welfare area, also child benefit, uh, maybe. Um, Then substantial package of recurring expenditure between tax cuts and spending increases, and a pot of money then put into... Uh, the rainy day fund. So I, I think you'll have broadly the same sort of package. But between now and then, there's going to be an awful lot of windbagging about it. Something for everyone in the audience by the sound of it. We, we are going to have to wrap it up pretty soon. But at, on this Friday podcast, we do like to pick out articles that have tickled our fancy over the course of the previous week in the Irish Times. My pick actually relates to just what Pat was talking about there because it's a column by Newton Emerson in yesterday's Irish Times on Thursday in which he puts two uh, ongoing news stories together in a way that I haven't seen anybody else do at first. One is exactly what Pat was talking about there, the largesse which is currently in the, uh, in the exchequer on the one hand. And the other hand, all our continuing discussions about North-South relationships and the future of Northern Ireland. And Newton suggests that it's about time that the South started contributing a bit more to the North, maybe even chipping in for the UK subvention, uh, which is falling short in terms of the funding of Northern Ireland at the moment. I think quite a quite a mischievous suggestion, but also quite a productive one. Pat, what was your choice? Yeah, I uh, picked Dermot 
Ferreter's piece in. Uh, it, it occurred to me when selecting this that I, I nearly always pick something on the Friday because I've read that a couple of hours ago and I can't remember uh, the pieces from the rest of the week, not least my own. But um, uh, Dermot Ferreter's piece, he's going through the history of farmers' parties and there's been a good bit of d- discussion um, about the um, uh, about the prospect of a new farmers are rural interests party being set up and Michael Fitzmaurice uh, has been talking uh, about it recently. Uh, I know some people will think oh, that this could be a, a game changer in, uh, in Irish politics. I remain a sceptic uh, about it. I think there's, there's already a farmers uh, party. It's just represented by uh, a disparate group of independents. And so if there's going to be a successful farmers party or rural interests party in the next doll, then one of two things has has to happen. Either new candidates from the new farmers party take the seats of people like Matty McGrath, Michael Lowry, uh, uh, the Healy Rays and so on, or Michael Lowry and Matty McGrath and the Healy Rays and the rest of uh, the rural independents join the new farmers party. And I can't see either of those things happening. Jen, what was your choice? Just kind of tying back to the conversation that we opened the podcast on in relation to Nile Collins, but it's a piece by Miriam Lord um, on Tuesday. And she was kind of it's just a really funny piece that gave me a laugh. Um, and she was talking about how, you know, the Kit Kat, this idea of the Kit Kat apology. Um, look, people have really busy lives and everyone has a lot going on. And I think a lot, some people might have actually looked at the Nile Collins story and been like, what exactly is that about? You know, what land? Like what? Because it's kind of intricate sometimes. And I think Miriam did a brilliant job in the piece of not only explaining it really well, but also making it funny. You know, there was one particular line where she's explaining her Kit Kat analogy and she was saying how, you know, just like the Kit Kat ad where the panda nips in and out and roller skates when the photographers are waiting hours to take its photograph, turn away to enjoy a chocolatey snack. And that was Niall Collins. And while it made me really want to kick out as well, I also really enjoyed the piece. And I think if anybody was looking for both a humorous take on the situation, but also like actually just a really good, like proper summary of here's what's happened over the last few months. Here's the story with the ditch. Here's the story with Niall Collins. And here's, you know, kind of some of the ridiculousness in the doll. I think they should go and read that. Absolutely, I completely agree. Yet another good reason to subscribe to irishtimes.com is Miriam Lord's. Miriam Lord's doll sketches. We are going to leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to Pat and Jen for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, John Casey, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Uh, We'll be back after the weekend, but until then, have a very nice bank holiday weekend.